three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest, probably one of my most favorite guests, my favorite guest in particular, is Roberta Glass. She runs the True Crime Report and Podcast. Her podcast is available on the iTunes uh, or podcast, Apple Podcast list. And we've done a bunch of talks in the past, but today we're going to talk about the Nexium updates. There's been the trial has started. And she has attended. I also, last year, right around this time, I interviewed Frank Parlato from the Frank Report, who's also done some stellar reporting, who knew uh, the chief malefactor, Keith Ranieri. So uh, you guys could listen to that interview as well um, on my YouTube channel, William Ramsey Investigates, or my podcast. But uh, Roberta, are you there? Yes, thank you. Awesome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Uh, maybe what we can do, there's been a lot of updates, a lot of new information. Maybe you can bring the audience up to date or just talk a little bit about your background and where people can find your material because you've been done, done doing a lot of firsthand reporting on many of these current criminal cases, but also uh, what's been going on with Nexium. Um, well, I guess my my background is really just as someone who's, you know, interested in true crime and followed it and got really uh, interested in the spin of, especially after the West Memphis Three case, how that was spun. So I talk a lot about how the defense spins their side in the press and how that becomes myth. So um, I'm on iTunes, I'm on Spreaker, and I'm on YouTube right now. And the Nexium um, court case, it started with, I think, around six defendants. And now they've everybody's pled out except for Keith Ranieri, who's also known as Vanguard, who's the cult leader. Or Grandmaster now. That's what's come out. He was also known as Grandmaster. <laughs> right. Okay, right. Okay. So he has a lot and of the, different names. Sorry. Yeah, the things that have come out about him, I mean, you know, I I went to a lot of the hearings um and now I'm attending you know the I'm attending the trial when I can you know and um <clears throat> what came out in Mark Vicente's testimony and he was a um in in uh, Nexium for 12 years he's a filmmaker who got involved with it and he testified that Keith Ranieri told people that he can't even be around electronics because his his vibe is so strong that they just short, you know, short circuit and um, become useless because he's so his energy is so powerful. And uh, I think Lauren Salzman just testified that she heard a story that Keith Ranieri went for a walk. That was his favorite thing to do with his followers to go for a walk and and talk, you know, talk at them and that it was raining and that it rained on the fall. Oh my God. It rained, on, it rained on the followers, but it didn't re- rain on Keith Ranieri. Right. So, like, in this trial, it's like they're saying that he claimed magical powers. Yes. Right. Very yes. much so. I mean, he said with one one follower that having sex with him, he emanated a blue light or they would see a blue light. I mean, there's all this kind of – and another interesting part of the testimony, and something that I said really early on was – that I thought Keith Ranieri thought about himself that he was arrested and 
perhaps targeted because he was too powerful. His ideas were too revolutionary that that would that like he's a political prisoner type thing. And what came out in Vicente's testimony is that he felt that he was being followed by the government (laughs) and filmed and, you know, and that there was a conspiracy to the highest levels to keep his revolutionary, you know, teaching kind of under. He had like the persecution. He uh, right. took upon himself right. the persecution complex, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Else. But I, I, what I find interesting is how absolutely schooled Ranieri is in the conspiracy—I don't know what you'd call it—materials. Uh, I think, <laughs> that so. have come I think out. that's right. The mysterious, the conspiracy genre. Genre, yeah. I mean, it just you know he. Uh, didn't believe in global warming. Um, he uses, uh, he's very interested in Luciferians as kind of Luciferians and how that they were really sub, uh, sub, subversive, uh, people or what did he call them? Repress, uh, the same word, uh, Scientology uses. Uh, suppressives. Suppressive. Suppressives. Suppressives. Right. SPs. You get, you get labeled right. an SP in Scientology and that's like, uh, being, uh, shunned or something, or being an apostate, right? And which basically means that anyone who's critical, even in the slightest bit of Scientology, that's really what being a suppressive person means. And it, it also was a word in Nexium, and that's, that's another thing I learned. I knew that Nexium had stolen a lot of their ideas from Scientology, but I had no idea the extent. No idea the extent. Sorry. I mean, pretty. It's pretty much the. Core belief of Nexium is really the core belief of Scientology, which is that we're unconscious of our oh gosh traumas that embed ourselves in our psyche or right. our so subconscious. The Scientologists and, use the term engram, so you're right. using the little funny machine with the two cans to overcome traumas in the past and release them. So you're, that's like one of the primary goals of. Well, getting to the clear state within Scientology, yeah. Right, and in Nexium, they have this thing called exploration of meaning, meaning, or EM. So you go through this, like, $3,000 to $4,000, it says, process of saying, I have a fear of crowds. So you talk with um, your counselor or your proctor, could be either one, and you try to find out why you're afraid of crowds. And maybe it's because you got, you know, lost you know left <laughs> left, left in as a, a child or something yeah. child, right mm-hmm. yeah oh, and you overcome it so gotcha. that's no that. it's interesting but did you get a feeling in any of those hearings about how big nexium actually got because the more i read the more it seems like there's even more connections with him all across the country with these teach movable teaching uh seminars and things like that did you ever get get a feel for that that's such a great question because I really thought that I would just wait for the trial. And obviously this would have been, uh, the trial would have been more revealing had there been more defendants. Right. But I'm still left with more questions. Obviously it's not over. It's still ongoing, but I have more questions now than I did before the trial. So you talk about how Nexium set up and it is not some sort of like, um, it's there's really a lot of thought put into it. I can't say it was effective or 
you know, whatever it, 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 it produced the claim, it produced the results that they said it did. However, you know, you look at all the different factions. You, I, I still don't know what the ethical science foundation, what were those experiments about? Who was right. benefiting from that? Was they, and I'm talking about the experiments where they put electrodes to women's heads and they made them watch videos of the most horrific images ever, like people's heads being stomped in and, you know, things really traumatizing. Really traumatizing. Yeah. That sounds like MK ultra stuff, you know, exactly. And, and Keith Ranieri could not have been, um, he could have not known about that, about MK ultra just with just, I just can't even imagine. He's so well-versed in, in um, conspiracy, the history of conspiracies right. or conspiracies well, and the, and the idea and the ideas themselves. Right. So he clearly knows Scientology. He understands a lot of the dynamics within that, but he also is like breaking people down and bringing them back up, which is like a Scientology technique, you know? He said about Allison Mack, like I think Vicente said, man, she's not looking very good. And he said, well, I mean, she looks like she's going to break. And, and Ranieri's response was, I'm trying to break her, right? So he's like definitely yeah. trying to remold and reformulate these people. And even in the, the, uh, the more recent testimony of Vicente, talking about metal ankle shackles, paddle boards, and a shock collar, like something from Star Trek. Right. He was a, he, That was actually testimony... Uh, from a sex company, oh. and, you know, and, and it's a little. The, I think that the women were were really. First of all, it, the most of the Nexium members, the majority of the members, were women. There were some men, but it was women. And Keith Ranieri, not only what did he have a lecherous, you know, interest in them, but he also had in a, a major interest in controlling and demeaning women. So those things were to be used in DOS, things like um, the opening statement of the prosecutor. She talks about Nikki Klein being um, tied to a table really? and wow. blindfolded and um, a, a stranger, someone she didn't know or didn't know who it was, you know, performing sexual acts on her and not knowing way later who it was so um it's just you know it's really interesting to me and i think a lot of women have clued into it uh this idea that this kind of sex positive feminism uh that's not really feminism where you just sexualize yourself and it's somehow empowering that kind of idea runs through dos and runs through nexium does that make sense yes absolutely so that's kind of like their selling point you know this is positive but the guy at the center of it's just manipulating everybody you know i mean i, I mean all the yeah. toys that you brought up those were toys to be used in dos which was part of the jeunesse part of nexium which was the self-empowerment group for women led by keith ranieri right, secretly right, right. of course right and, yeah and so how empowering and how uh positive could it be if he was he was talking about building a dungeon right like an S&M dungeon. There was some talk about that too, which is incredible. So very, very uh, devious and evil. And even Vicente said it was like he cried on the stand, right? That was shocking. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that was really early. I mean, he just got on the, to continue his testimony. And so the, uh, the prosecutor will put up documents 
they'll be projected in the courtroom. And he said, do you recognize that what that is? And he says, yes, that's the mission statement we read, you know, before each class or intensive, or, you know, class. And he just started breaking down and it, it was so, um, it was just, it was sad. It was really sad to see, to see how broken and, uh, I guess embarrassed and he felt ashamed. Yeah. Uh, those were some of the things that I, I got from it. And he said, because it's, and he said, why are you having that react? The prosecutor asked why he had that reaction. He said, because it's, because it's this kind of, um, it, it's it's a I think I quoted in my in my podcast exactly, but he says it's basically evil. It's covering up a, a, an evil, calling Nexium evil. Right. And did you see? I mean, I looked at some of these. I was looking through some research today, particularly New York Post, but there was a, a an exhibit, three hundred and sixty three. Like it was a huge amount of exhibits. Did you see a lot of exhibits when you're sitting in the in the trial? Yes. Okay. So they're putting yeah. up lots of information. They're putting up, I mean, some things is just, I mean, Nexium owns, owned a restaurant. I had no, no idea. So yes, it is bigger. I mean, that's a great question. It is bigger uh, than, than, than uh, I think anyone, I mean, I think probably, you know, than I knew, obviously. Well, one of the reasons I asked that is Scientology had like thousands of front companies, very benign sounding front companies that would draw people in on very similar sounding classes that Nexium had and so, suddenly you'd be paying money and then you'd be brought, brought further in and then somebody would be making money off the money you spent and it's all kind of very similar to what Ranieri was using like a pyramid scheme you know where people would be making money off of getting new converts and it just sounds very Scientology like to me just like you said right there was tons of companies open uh you know, under different names like Occam's Razor and, you know, just there's a list as long as your arm of, of companies started by, by Nexium. But how active all of them were, I, you know, I, I don't know. I know that Rainbow Cultural Gardens, which was the um, the school for, for small small kids, that was in many different countries. And um, so... And right. of course, the Ethical Science Foundation, and you know, lots of different kind of lots of different different things. And like Vicente yeah. also said, like he was conversing with Ranieri, talking about being a psychopath, and Ranieri flat out said, "I could be," you know. And I think Vicente came to the conclusion that he was a psychopath, right? He's yeah, and you see that <clears throat> in court. I mean, he's been cleaned up in the hearings. He really looked homeless and disturbed and maybe like a, a homeless mental patient, maybe a combination of both. And now they've cut his hair, um, which is dyed with ballpoint pens, which strangely doesn't look all that bad right now. Interesting. And, you know, they put him in these, um, you know, sort of like preppy sweaters and collared shirts. And he is watching the testimony like it, it's not the most horrific stuff you've ever heard like oh like putting his head hand on his chin like oh like it's not him who did it you know it's just very and very he's quiet. loving all the attention and he's he just i'm sure he's loving hearing his name being repeated a million times in court. It's not, obviously a narcissistic narcissist if not a narcissistic sociopath that is my armchair armchair uh and you had i think we were talking earlier in the week you had likened his kind of look to the one of the Menendez brothers, right? 
Yeah, <laughs> that was so funny because I, when I saw him, I was like, that is, you know, they dressed up the Menendez brothers to make them in these pastel sort of gentle colors. And I said, I mean, it was like, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, that is the Lyle Menendez and Eric Menendez look. And when I got out on a break and got my phone back, I looked up the Menendez brothers and there was the exact same sweater, except Lyle wore a crew neck and Keith wears V-necks, but right. exact same outfit. So I, I had my friend put uh, Keith Ranieri's head on <laughs> Lyle Menendez's body to give everybody an idea of what it looked like. So, yeah. Now, I'm sure image is something that the defense thought of. Right, so um, Agnafillo's in there. And you had some own personal comments or opinions about Agnafillo's opening statement, right? Yeah, I, it was hard. It was the worst opening statement. I've listened to a lot of opening statements. I've read a lot of opening statements. And this was the worst, longest, most rambling. Um, I said, I, I thought it reminded me of in, um, I guess, uh, just someone with a lot of disconnected, unorganized thinking. That's there's a term in psychology where people are expressing unorganized thinking. It was un, he didn't prepare for it. He didn't have notes. I thought he had notes. He had no notes. He just went up there and winged it and started wow. quote telling stories from World War II and Churchill and quoting To Kill a Mockingbird and repeating ideas and mixing them with the other ideas and basically, you know, he went to the same defense, which is what all defense lawyers go to when their client is a sleazebag, which is, you know, you may not like my client, my client, what my client did may be morally distasteful, but he's not being, it's not illegal to be, you know, a moral, he's not on trial for being morally repugnant, you know, that right. type of thing. Yep, yep, absolutely. So it was a long, it was a long opening statement. Did he take like a half an hour, an hour? Yeah, it was right before lunch. It took an hour. Wow. And so, and it was in contrast to the prosecute uh, the prosecution opening statement, um, uh, and which was very it was obviously written out, very succinct. And you know, the idea of an opening statement is like the introduction to a book to give you an idea. Here's here's what this case is all about. Here's what we're going to prove, and here's how we're going to go about doing it. That's it. Right. You know. And it's you. Not- and when the witnesses were on, you had stated that you were curious as to the judge actually uh, quizzing the witness for the prosecution, right? Do you remember kind of some of the questions yeah. he asked? I just remember that one, but he asked a lot of, he asked a question about videotapes. He, they, Nexium had a uh, committee, I think it was like, um, a law committee, but no one on that committee, Claire Bronfman was part of it, but nobody on the committee was a lawyer. And so the judge asked, did you, before you illegally edit these videotapes that were going to be evidence in a court case against a uh, cult expert uh, and activist, Rick Ross, did you ever, did you ask a lawyer? Did you consult a lawyer? So he's asking right. not just clarifying questions, really poignant um you know, right. precise, specific He's asking, right. So for, right. For a very interesting, it's an interesting question because that was a long drawn out case, right? Uh, next team tried to bury Rick Ross. If I remember like through long-term, uh, litigation. So if they're actually covering up stuff that had been requested by a discovery, they're, they're breaking the law. So it's interesting that the judge brought up something from the past. Was that a topic of conversation between, the prosecutor and the witness, do you recall? 
Well, Nancy Salzman pled guilty to editing these videotapes. So okay. that was a big part of her, okay, what, you know, her plea. So um, that's, I think, why. But you get an idea of it took, you know, one of the documents was Mark Vicente's memo to his crew that was helping edit these videotapes. And what they were doing was creating uh, static and distortion uh, in parts where they had removed certain elements of what Nancy Salzman said, which was like that Nexium can cure diseases and things like that, that mm-hmm. would obviously get them in trouble. And they were also putting it in random places to make it look not suspicious, but they were also aging the videotapes with sandpaper wow. and the label. So, I mean, this was, the memo was extensive and you got an idea of how, um, these are not lazy, um, these are highly functional people who would be a success in the real world, probably, right? Interesting, right. But are all their time to Nexium. I mean, that's what I got from Mark Vicente's incredibly detailed memo about how we're going to complete doing this task of editing these videotapes, even well, to the detail of putting away the equipment in the box that the, the equipment was bought in, you know? Right, like put it right back. That's interesting. That's another like Scientology indicator because through Scientology's training, you have power over what they call messed matter, energy, space, and time. So you're like a truly like independent creature, like, and you're supposed to conquer your health and all that. So when she says, if they have that indi- that stuff within their writings, that's also very telling to me. Yeah, it's it's very interesting and. Uh... And when uh, Mark Vicente said, asked, uh, he asked Nancy Salzman a question. He was asking if there was something nefarious going on in Nexium, and they turned it back on him and said, "What's wrong with you that you can't accept that the, that this organization is so noble and so ethical and so good? What is wrong with you that you can't accept that there's so much good in the world? So any criticism that you have of Nexium, it's some kind of." you know, awesome moral. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Like we're under assault, the persecution complex. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> and, uh, there was another one yesterday, right? Wasn't there a, uh, a different witness for the prosecution? Was it Lauren Saltzman or I think one of the, is that right? Do you remember, do you recall anything that happened yesterday? I wasn't in court yesterday. I just from uh, Lauren Salzman testified and she testified about, how Keith promised her a baby and it just went on, you know, for years not happening and just some of the inner, inner workings of DOS and, and um, how, you know, DOS meaning um, the branding sexual slave part of Nexium. Right. And I'm trying to remember, like uh, you had said, just going back to Vicente, you said that there were questions regarding this one, member of the the group even before i think nexium was established her name was Kristen snyder who disappeared in alaska and vicente had said said that uh ranieri said something about that right or he knew something about that right so Kristen snyder was a woman who it was a i think officially ruled ruled a suicide she was a a lesbian woman with a partner who got in, in involved in the alaska um you know, local Nexium, uh-huh. and Keith Ranieri became obsessed, and eventually, I guess, she got involved with Keith Ranieri, 
in Albany and got obsessed with converting her uh, and making her straight by, of course, sleeping with her. And uh, she was apparently in not great health right before she committed suicide where a canoe tipped over. So and she left a note. Uh, saying she didn't know she was already dead. And many people have wondered if that was actually a murder because Keith Ranieri's on tape saying, I've had people murdered for my belief or killed for my belief. I'm not sure exactly what the exact quote is. So what Keith Ranieri told Mark Vicente about Kristen Snyder was that there were um, obvious problems with the story of her death one Kristen snyder was a survivalist so how did her how did she tip over her canoe so easily you know i guess uh two uh the note talks about nexium when nexium didn't even exist back then all right? right and three that Kristen snyder is still alive and happily living with her partner in a motel room Right, and her body was never found, right? So that's right. So super suspicious. And Mark said he believed every word. Wow. So interesting, right? Yeah, when I talked to Parlotto, I talked about the Snyder case. There was another woman who died under suspicious circumstances in Albany as well. And I wonder if that's going to be brought up at trial or any of that information will come out. Uh, Yeah. I forgot her name offhand. Vicki Hudson, I think it is. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes, that's right. She was a long term member as well. But I also saw, like, there's other people that keep popping up. Like, there's new names that I didn't know about. These Loretta Garza, Rosa Laura Junko, Monica Duran. Are you familiar with any of those those names that were people are in Ranieri's orbit? No. Yeah. That's just something that, I mean, there's just more information that's coming out. So I think this, this trial will be very fascinating. Uh, I mean, if they have 400 exhibits, they've done their homework, you know. So it. Uh, I wonder how long... Did you hear anything in any of the hearings or anything about how long the prosecution was going to need to, uh, or how long the jurors were going to have to be set aside? Do you recall anything like that? Yeah. um, I think we're looking at at least a a two or three week trial, at least is what I've heard. So So we're going on the second week now and the first week, uh, I guess this is this is the end of the second week. The first week uh, they started on a Tuesday and they ended on a Thursday. Usually the judge doesn't work on Friday, but he's making an exception. exception. And you're seeing all the media. I think you were around Frank Parlato too, or seeing some some regular uh, attendees. Is that correct? Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, what happened was the first day. Of- I, I said, nothing will make you feel more like a loser when you're in line to get into the courtroom and the person in front of you, they cut it off at the person in front of you. And they were only letting in, I think I was number 20, 24, 22 that day. And so they're only letting in a tiny number of people in the courtroom. And they're um, so there's really not a lot of space. So everybody went to the overflow room. So Forbes was there. There's all there's a space for the local press um, in court. But you know, it's, there was a lot of interest in the case. The overflow room was filled, oh, and that was a pretty big room. Frank Rolotta was there. Um, BuzzFeed was sitting, uh, someone from BuzzFeed, someone from Forbes. Of course, my friend Melissa Roberto. 
from Radar Online sat next to me who was really <laughs> angry she didn't get in because you can't see much. I mean, if anybody thinks that the, the prosecution and the state is the man with infinite power, boy, will that be debunked when you go in court and you see the equipment <laughs> that they're using. And there's no, they're not allowing uh, videotape of the trial, right? I don't think I've seen anything like that. No, and that was something that was interesting. Um, there's two security points. So I don't know if they think someone's going to come in there with a gun and try to uh, oh, pick off Keith Ranieri or what. So you have to go through the usual, which is like pretty much airport security, except you don't have to take off your shoes. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go through another security check, you know, another um, check, check just right. like it right before you get into court. And right before I was going into court, I can't remember which day this was, the the gentleman before me had tried to sneak in a recording device. And Ooh. boy, were they unhappy with him. He was let in, but he was with a warning. So Wow. Yeah, That's they're really about that. They should be. I mean, I think that all this interest and a lot of that information gets out, things can get skewed in the media. So, I mean, the media already skews. A lot of these stories anyway so they, they i mean it's i think it's important i there's always a, a an argument within the law about whether they should have video cameras in the supreme court or other courtrooms or not and i am steadfastly on never like never put the video court it was a huge mistake in the oj trial and all these other trials where it uh it actually de- decreases the kind of you know, the seriousness of these cases where you have, you know, the mob or just the group of people making these, you know, off the cuff judgments, maybe watching 15 minutes of something and then garner, you know, trying to make a determination on the whole case. There's a lot of opportunities for misunderstanding when you have those videotapes in there. So I definitely believe it's you mean misunderstanding by the public or yeah, by the public performative. Or? Yeah, thank you. It was definitely by the public. I think that def- that's really the the real primary danger. I think of having those videotapes in there. It's like, uh, you know, you really want it to be a serious. Uh, and I think that was a mistake in the West Memphis three. Actually, I don't think they should have been allowed the media in there to videotape it as well. If I was the judge, I wouldn't have allowed it. I think Judge Ito on the OJ case actually it hurt his reputation by allowing all this media circus in there. You know, so after the OJ, so yeah, I mean. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother uh, podcast. But it's uh, there's been you know the historically I think uh, it hasn't been in the in the in the objective in the general court's favor to ever have uh, those videotapes or have things videotaped. In my opinion. Well, it, you know, I, I thought before I, before it's very different than watching being in court is very different than watching even hours <laughs> of video of a of a trial you know the benches are hard uh you're standing up you're sitting down there's all sorts of rules i wasn't there but apparently some journalists got kicked out from by the judge for making some face really wow face keith ranieri um you know it's it's when people say oh he spent you know he or she spent five days on the stand and it, it was grueling. You really understand why they say that. It, it really is right, grueling right. to be in the courtroom. And a lot of the press will go in for a couple hours, leave, take some time off, and you know that'll be it for them. To sit through a whole day of, of trial is is intense and hard, and takes a lot of concentration. And uh, absolutely, it's, uh, 
you know, it's different, way different than, you know, watching in your living room and being able to pause it and take a break and be in your pajamas. Right. Is there anything else that we didn't cover on Nexium? Anything you'd like to add? Not that, not that I, I mean, I guess everybody's waiting for Alice and Mac to testify if that's going to happen or not. We don't know, right? We don't. But I mean, I think that this is going to just get more and more interesting, this whole case. You know, I think that there's still stuff to be... I mean, usually... I think they brought in Vicente first because he was there for so long. And he... Excuse me. He provided the background for everything, right? So now they're going to just add on more and more um, relevant, you know, victims, I think, is really what's coming, you know, in my opinion. I don't know. I'll see what happens. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing... You know, I heard that that they're not going to put on a defense, but I can't imagine that actually happening. So, well, I'd like to. I want to see who his defense witnesses are going to be. You know, I would. I would definitely be interested in seeing that. Who's going to come out and, and try to whitewash Ranieri? That would be interesting. Right. I mean, they said while you were in Nexium, they said that the word cult didn't exist. You know, and uh, Keith Ranieri had this plan to film a, a regular family and, and put out all this press that there was a cult, uh, this family was a cult, so that they could later reveal to the public that it was just an ordinary family and see everything could be manipulated by the press to make it look like a cult, even a nice, normal family. Wow. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I wonder if they're going to get some like kind of uh, C-minus cult expert to say Nexia wasn't a cult. I'd be interested in yeah, see that. Definitely. definitely. I wonder if they'll bring in experts, like literal cult experts. I wonder what, uh, you know. The prosecution what... is. Yeah. Yeah, the prosecution is. But I don't know about the defense, right? Who could well, they find? <laughs> Some I don't guy know. from Altoona, PA or something. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with Altoona. But just, the prosecution you know. has not disclosed who their expert witness is, though, right? Um, the prosecution has at least I know that the the cult expert and now I'm of course forgetting his name has been disclosed. It didn't disclose. Oh, yeah. Just in, in, that in the hearings, yeah, gotcha. and what he's going. Um, well, Nexium, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. But there have been some kind of other true crime updates. I mean, you and I have talked about uh, the recent the recent accusations that were made against Tony Robbins. At least that was today. That was interesting, and also. Uh, Bob Ruff has stopped his investigation into the Melgar case, right? Right. So have you followed? To, okay. He must, Bob Ruff must have some agent. That's all I have to say. Um, <laughs> because, you know, no one, we, we were all, I wasn't all that bewildered why he, he stopped the West Memphis three investigation, but now that's going to uh, be a show on oxygen. Bob oh, Ruff solving solved crimes. <sighs> God, it's, incre- it's incredible. <laughs> and then Nancy Grace is, I mean, Nancy Grace, who, who was like the, the one of the only people who wasn't in on this whole innocence <laughs> fraud, fraud. Yeah. Uh, is now going to investigate uh, or highlight, you know, uh, examples of false convictions. Oh, so no, she, no, no. that's, that's even sadder to me in some ways. Is she doing that on oxygen or what's she doing? Uh, too. And oh, no. of course, Kim Kardashian, who uh, <laughs> supported Centoya Brown. Uh, 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 that's a case that has been, I, I get a lot of flack for, but it's been 
largely misreported in the press that she was like 12 years old and that, you know, she was being trafficked by her pimp and that her life was in danger. She shot a sleeping man in the back uh, and she told uh, her fellow inmates that she just wanted to see what it felt like to kill someone. Wow. Yeah, and she's being she got pardoned by the governor. I think she's dangerous. Wow. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, so Ruff is on oxygen. And is he doing like a, a legitimate? Do you know who his producers are? Or if he's if he's self-producing? Did you hear anything about that? I don't know. I don't know. I just couldn't follow the Melgar case anymore. Just such. It's like I honestly would rather sit in front of somebody drawing their nails down a down a chalkboard for an hour than listen to him talk. It's incredible. I, I don't know how some people can actually follow him and then criticize. I don't know how they have the the fortitude, the stamina to do it. It's incredible. Well, I think before I um I I did um I can't remember what I was what I was I, I think it was researching for my Bob Ruff episode. I was <laughs> I tried to uh, play it for my boyfriend, and he fell asleep within two minutes. I mean, out. He was out, like snoring. So, help oh was God. on that. So, I find him very boring too. But obviously, I do not have my pulse on uh, what the American public likes. My so, fingers on the pulse. So, do you think that? He, I mean, uh, I think when we we talked, you and I talked offline uh, last month. It was that he still kind of has a. Uh, has an audience and people are still giving him money on Patreon and still, do you have any idea about what his listenership is? That's an interesting thing because, you know, uh, it's really hard to get this, uh, statistics, uh, of iTunes and I'm sure it's on many different platforms and put them all together and try to figure out who's really listening. Uh, I, I don't know. And he's been caught in so many lies and to accuse, you know, uh, people of murder at the drop of a hat. You would think he would be questioned uh, more intensely for that. But he's just not criticized yeah, at all. It seems even he's not even criticized for um, his belief in almost everybody's innocence. Not, I mean, that's the criticism that I get the most, which is that, you know, you believe so much in the justice system and you just think everyone's guilty. And that criticism bothers me because it, it implies that I don't research, research anything and that I just cut corners and I just declare everyone guilty before looking at both sides. When, when I take a lot of time and trouble to do that and, and, He's never criticized for it, never, you know? Never seems to happen. Or whatever happens, his, the criticism, he just blocks it and keeps on going. It's really remarkable. Like, he does, he's, like, oblivious to really looking at it. And I think it really comes down to his agenda is really where he's positioned himself as this uh, paladin for the wrongful conviction. And he'll just make up a wrongful conviction in any situation, really. As long as anybody tells him they're wrong. I mean, I think for him to sit down with Damien Eccles and just you know, believe the PR of his defense team right off the bat without a lot of questioning, I think. And without actually a lot of contradiction, like he, you know, I offered to talk to him. He denied that. I think Mies tried to. And so, you know, he's not, he's not listening. He's not taking the time to listen to all sides and take an objective stance, I think. William Ramsey, he pretended not to know who you were. I know. He knows why. (laughs) He sends texts to me. They know... Look, man, they know me 
so does real crime profile with uh, Zambetti and what's the other joker's name uh this Clemente they know they know each other they, those guys know each other and they know me very well they've sent texts to me they've sent tweets to me they know exactly who I am they're lying it's not like there's like a, a a huge abundance there's an abundance of people who believe in the who who publicly have written books about the West Memphis Three's guilt right no, so not many me me there's one Gary, other guy, uh, yeah, but anyway, so that's interesting. Isn't the crime con right now, isn't there some kind of crime convention taking place? Are you aware of that? Yeah, it's, isn't it in New Orleans? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think so. I'm assuming Ruff is headed there and real crime profile and this whole new podcasting crime community is probably all going to show up, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's much more exciting. I mean, if you have infinite, uh, infinite ways that you could say what happened at a crime and ignore the evidence, obviously you could create a much more exciting podcast, right? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Some of these guys, I mean, I don't even want to name names, but some of these podcasters, very well known, tens of millions of downloads, they just read their stuff right off of Wikipedia. So they don't even really have to do any work. I've literally listened to one very well-known podcast and read along with them as they were reading off Wikipedia. Oh, I didn't know I could do that. Just read Wikipedia. No, I'll send it to you. I have proof. They've already done it. They're just reading the Wikipedia page. They're not reading books, not looking at any court documents, nothing. Yeah, you can make a a good living just reading stuff off Wikipedia, put it into a podcast. Can we talk about Tony Robbins a yes, little bit? Yes, let's do it. Absolutely. So Berlinger did this most fright. Who did Berlinger? Joe Berlinger, who's the director of, uh, the co-director of the West Memphis Three, Paradise Lost, uh, some of those movies. There's yeah. one that's directed by the now I can't remember his name. I always forget his name Zanofsky? from. Uh, no. no, you know the guy who did. Oh, you know he did. Heavenly Creatures, and he did that big yes. franchise. Uh, Ru- Parker, about. no, what's New Zealand? Was it? It's from New Zealand. It's New Zealand, yeah. It's uh, his wife's name is Lord Fran. of the Rings trilogy. No, I know exactly. I'm just totally blanking. Uh, it'll come to me. Lord of the Rings, and he paid for everything. He right. Paid, he donated serious money into the West Memphis Three Defense Fund. His name is I'm totally blanking. Can't figure it out. <laughs> anyway, what about him? Let's go. We can figure it out. So anyway, so he 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 basically creates or or makes the whole narrative that the West Memphis Three were victims of some kind of satanic panic and hysteria, and that they were really innocent. Uh, And then he did this documentary. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Thank you. I I tend not to remember people's names when I find them distasteful. (laughs) Well, you should see his little witch tattoo that Damien Eccles gave him. When I saw that, I about fell off my chair. It's amazing. It's got the whole Theban alphabet on there with the sigil. Yeah, it's really pretty. Left shoulder. So Joe Berlinger does this documentary called I'm Not Your Guru, which is just a love letter to Tony Robbins. And I I, I just, just a correction. I would never put the words documentary and Joe Berlinger in the same sentence. True. What else should I call it? A mockumentary 
a ridiculous <laughs> exercise, a film. Oh my God! There's none of his actual those things that he calls documentaries are legit. There's none of them. The one on the 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 whole crude oil thing that happened down in Ecuador was fake. It was a propaganda piece. The guy just keeps putting out lousy things, and these people at HBO keep picking them up. Picking them up. Netflix picked them up. I I was talking to you off off the uh, interview that I know somebody who said that um, Netflix regretted putting up his newest movie, which is not really a documentary, but extremely wicked, shockingly evil. They really uh, didn't know that it was going to be a little love letter to a serial killer. It's scary, right? And I sent you those those, uh, interviews he was doing when he was uh, promoting the film. He's like, oh, yeah. I'm evil. Here's he was saying something about him being evil. Like he's just like, come on, dude, you're not honest. How can anybody look at you as an objective, honest account of any of these stories? It's incredible. And this other woman that uh, really green lighted everything. Her name is Sheila Nevins. She sits on yes. HBO, and she's got all these awards and stuff. And she's directly behind all three of these Paradise Lost pseudo documentaries. And she. Now is moving to MTV and she's lauded in this LA community as this great beacon of honesty and truth. And I just like, I'm like gagging. Like you got to be out of your mind to write this stuff. It's a joke. Because I think it's hard for people to imagine. I mean, it's not so hard for me. I mean, I, you know, my dad was in the film business. I understand it, but you know, it's hard for people to imagine that a documentary is not truthful and that the entire narrative in the press is is wrong and false and inaccurate that's that's a hard pill to swallow don't you think i think that's absolutely absolutely they put it into the you'll put you into the theorist class you're irrational you have what did the guys from uh real crime profile say to me they said i was engaging in confirmation bias if you think that the west memphis three are currently guilty which they are objectively at law it's confirmation bias if you think they actually did something wrong how is this word bias? It's, it's, if you look, it's called having an opinion. It's called looking at both sides and then forming an opinion. Yeah. How is that a bias? I don't know. I don't know. Oh. I just, it just boggles the mind. Some of the kind of oh. terminology and the way they be, these people think about things. You just scratch your head. It's unbelievable. Oh my God. Like I, when I first researched the West Memphis three, I had no idea. I, I figured actually they were innocent because I heard they got out in 2011. I was like, Oh, there must've been something wrong with the case. You know, I'll go check it out. Oh, the court documents are here. Let me go read the court documents. Oh boy, this is what's what's going on with all this. Why are people actually saying they're innocent when there's tons of evidence, tons of stuff in the court record? So anyway, um, so I, I really just thought that. I mean, maybe I, I think either I'm deluded and naive, but I thought that with the most recent kind of fit like fail of the McCann the Madeline McCann documentary right. with, that was uh, put out by really looks like it was put out by her her parents even though they said oh we had nothing to do with it, it, it you know it spends an entire episode talking about how many pedophiles there were in Prior to Luge, wow, Portugal yeah. when it's the third safest place <laughs> country in the world right. uh and uh, the failure of the Adnan Syed documentary, I thought that maybe we were just turning the corner. But there is always money to be made, and in, in, uh, they were convicted, but maybe they're really innocent. You know? All right, really I, well I, said. I, I don't know if we'll ever well see said. the end of it. No, you'll never see the end. As long as there's somebody to stir up controversy and sell a film, it's probably going to go on from now 
to the end of time. I think that you'll just see it over and over again until people just really can can't take it anymore. It's like this is fake. So right, yeah. and as an artist, you want your film to have. I wouldn't call Joe Berlinger an artist, but he think probably thinks he is. You want your film to have the deepest impact on society, and what what's the what bigger impact could there be than uh, your film getting a uh, prisoner released? You know, right. right, right, very well said. In his instance, it was a, a child killer. So, but you know, I don't know. I don't <laughs> child know. killer. Yeah. Oh, Triple my Oh. It's unbelievable, but we, you know, we got distracted off of Robbins because your intro was talking about Berlinger, and oh, so God. I'm not your guru, right? So he <laughs> he made that. He I'm made sorry. that, right. and uh, Anthony Robbins. Uh, I had read an article a long time ago about Anthony Robbins uh, being, I guess, um, kind of sexually what do you call it victimizing his followers i guess uh, you know being really um preying on them yeah preying on them and it came to uh he got under the microscope when he i think some i can't remember the exact whether it was a rape victim or a sexual assault victim but some woman who was some kind of uh, victim, he told her not to not to take on the role of the victim and pity herself, and he got in a lot of um, trouble for saying that. Hmm. And so they, there's a new article that just came out in BuzzFeed talking about his history with women and treating women really terribly. Yeah, I mean, and so there's all these accusations, and that's probably just the beginning of the. There'll probably be more, you know. Once the the pattern is of these abusers, is that one, once one person comes out, then these other people have the courage to tell their story as well. So I would anticipate it not getting better for Robbins, but getting worse. Yeah. Have and, you, have you been following any of the, the Michael Jackson estate stuff that, that kind of that push that they're putting out? Not really. What tell me what's going on. I've just never seen anything like it. If you look up like Michael Jackson leaving Neverland on YouTube and there'll be about, 50 videos all talking about how innocent he he was and how Ray Wade Robson and Jimmy Safechuck, who are the subjects of the documentary Leaving Neverland, are liars. And there'll be uh, body language experts saying, look at look how they're lying and they're they're guilty. And just it's, it's I've never seen a campaign like this. Wow. Ever. So, so here's another know. another powerful PR push to, you know, cover up somebody who's made settlements right civil civil judgments right or not not really civil judgments but they're civil settlements with safe chuck and the other guy right right and um i think he i just um was listening to a podcast talking about how he gave jimmy safe chuck's father a Royals royce wow <laughs> Well, did, which, which one did he like give a wedding ring to? Was it Safe Chuck or was it uh, Safe Robson? Chuck. Safe Chuck, okay. Safe Chuck, and then there's video of them um, shopping for for rings together in with Michael Jackson in a disguise. It was a whole. It was it was out in the press. The most interesting thing about Michael Jackson is how open he was with his. Uh, child boyfriends. I mean, I don't want to victims really, but I don't. I don't want to be insensitive, but. Well, it's you a know, good point. There's tons of pictures of him with little boys. It's just all the time. Like it's like, 
there's no real attempt to really shield them from the media, right? And that's the most interesting thing about uh, their their lawsuit against the Jackson estate, Jimmy Safechucks and Wade Robsons, is that they talk about uh, it being an entire enter- – Michael Jackson's uh, business being an entire enterprise to support his pedophilia. So that it wasn't just him doing it alone. It was really um, – you know, really a lot of a lot, a lot of people, of people right, making lot, it happen. making it happen. Neverland was like the, you know, the, all the rides and all that stuff and all the people surrounding him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look good for Jackson. I mean, I think you and I had talked about offline that there's a lot of money at stake. I think the Jackson is, you know, estate is worth billions of, of recurring revenues over time. So if the, if the value of the, Michael Jackson brand diminishes, uh, that could cost a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's only at the root of these root of these innocence campaigns, right? I think so. I think so. Right. So Rob and Robbins, just for people who don't know, he wrote a blurb for Damien Damien Eccles most recent (laughs) book. So that's all like this incestuous bunch of worms in uh you know just crawling over each other robbins and berlinger and eccles it's gross <laughs> it's amazing oh god for that that's so true right yeah they're just like feeding off each other it's really it's just like a, a lamprey attached attached to a lamprey attached to a lamprey it's just something else it's amazing right and so many of these so many of these people who get out on a technicality or get themselves out somehow an Alfred plea. They like to hang around each other too. They do, right. So there's that famous infamous picture of Amanda Knox and Eccles together hugging and smiling. And she's still out just like saying she's innocent when she was found guilty of Colonia, I think in Italy, which is basically chucking the poor black guy in front of the bus, that bus in Italy. I mean, it's just bad. It's like slander. Yeah. yeah it's just and, and, she, and her, the decision that got her acquitted was that she was there the night of the murder and did she wash the victim's blood off her hands. Right. That's the decision that got her, that released her. Right. And she goes around saying that she was so exonerated. By right, it. exactly. So <laughs> this is this is how they play it off in the public. It's an excellent point. So the judge come, the judges come to a conclusion. What was the highest court in Italy? I can't remember. It was some kind of appeals court, right? Highest court, yeah. yeah. So it's very defense-friendly. So that same court... Is also the same court that um, determined that Lance Armstrong's doctor wasn't guilty of doping. So that'll give you an idea of how defendant-friendly um, right. that that system is. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh man, I mean, I gotta go take a sh- another shower. Oh my god. Anyway, <laughs> so Roberta Glass, people can find you at. You have a YouTube channel and a podcast. And uh, you've got some social media. You're on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, is there anything else else you would like to add? Yes. I also have a Facebook group, discussion group. So Nice, yeah. People check that out. There's really good conversations, really good postings there. So I'm a member. If you want to come and scream at me or, you know, stalk me, you can find (laughs) me there. (laughs) If you want to threaten to sue me this week, you know, I need to get one lawsuit threat a, a month. So, you know, might as well. Find me at the Roberta Glass Facebook page and threaten to sue me. (laughs) 
I'm waiting for your lawsuit. Oh, yeah, I just wait for the papers, you know, whatever. That's what I, I mean, I don't know. Some people who, yeah, I mean, no, we, can, we can talk offline. All right, Roberta Glass, True Crime Report. Thank you so much. What a great uh, interview. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, all right.